And let's open our Bibles, John 15. We'll pick up in verse 18. Um, I do read out of the KJV, so you can thank me for that later. <laughs> but be that as it may, John 15, 18. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and not spoken unto them, they had not sinned, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no other man did, they had not sinned. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. As we pick up here in the farewell discourse, you guys know that this is the last handful of chapters before Jesus is crucified. It takes place virtually over one evening. John chapter 13, it starts, and it starts out great. It's a celebration of the Passover meal, right? That Seder meal that they would share together. And it's a celebration where they rejoice that God delivered them out of Egypt. It starts out great. Jesus says that I've loved my own and I've loved them completely or till the end. And then he washes his disciples' feet. But that celebration, that, that celebratory mood, that, that, that feeling of excitement soon shifts to a feeling of sorrow and sadness because Jesus says, I'm going away. And where I go, you cannot come also. And for these guys, they've, they've left everything and they've followed Jesus for three years. They've left family. They've left friends. They've left community. They've left vocation. And Jesus says, I'm going. And where I go, you can't come. And then he says another thing. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Of course, he was speaking of Judas Iscariot. But all of the disciples, one of the gospel tells us, they look around the room one at another and they all say, is it, is it me? Because they all know their hearts. They know the capacity that they have. They will be people that have the capacity to deny their Savior. But he says, one of you guys that has been traveling with me for these three years is going gonna, is gonna to betray me. But then also on top of that, your fearless leader, that, that hunk of a man, Peter, he's going to deny, right? Three times. That leader, that bold, outspoken man, he's going to actually deny me? And the mood is somber. It's sober, and it is sad. But Jesus shifts that really quick, picking up on the feeling of the room. He shifts that. If you guys pick it up in John 14, he says, hey guys, let not your hearts be troubled. It's a choice. You guys have an opportunity right now. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many mansions, and uh, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you guys. But if I go, I'm going to come again and receive you to myself. So he goes through this time, and he gives them a word of encouragement. Let not your hearts be troubled. You have this choice because you believe in me. You've got this hope of heaven. And then you know the nature of the Father, as Phil says, well, just show us the Father, and it's good. And Jesus says, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and you know the nature of the Father by looking at the person of Jesus. 
And he says, I send you the comforter. So you've got the comfort of the Spirit. He's there. And not only that, you've got this privilege of prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, according to my nature, you know that I'm going to give it. And I give you my peace. It's not peace like the world gives, but it's peace that passes understanding. It's outside of circumstance. That's the peace of Jesus. So he gives them this word of encouragement. And then he shifts as that chapter 14 ends in, in um, arise, let us go hence, like the King James says. Uh, they, they get up from that meal and they cross the Kidron Valley. And as they begin to ascend the Mount of Olives, they look back in that, that moonlit, one of the gospels tells us it's a full moon night. And they peer back at the Temple Mount, Herod's Temple, which would have the golden vine that crests the entryway. And, and Jesus uses that as an illustration. He says, hey guys, I am the true vine. Abide in me. And so he shifts from encouragement to exhortation, right? Like, you have to abide in me, guys. Remember this, abide. And that abide, it means to remain or to make your home in. Remain. Abide in me. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, I am the source of good fruit. I am the source of joy, of peace, of love, of hope, of gentleness. That's found in me. And you can't bear that stuff outside of me, in and of yourselves. You can do nothing. And on the, as a matter of fact, on the contrary, if you're outside, if you remove yourself from me, you wither up and you dry out and you fade away. And so he moves from a word of encouragement to a word of exhortation. And here as we pick up, he actually gives us a word of warning. If the world hate you. There we were around the table, the four great theologians of the fifth grade at Highland Elementary School, me and my buddy Sean and Ian and Chris. And we somehow got on the conversation of religion, and Sean pipes up and he says, well, I'm a Catholic. And I don't think he really knew what it meant, but he's like, I'm a Catholic. And Ian follows that up too, and he's like, hey, we're Catholic too. My buddy Chris, though, he was the cool guy, and he was the guy that I wanted to be like, and he had the most friends, and he was the, the popular one of us, not that any of us really grabbed that, but he says, I'm not religious at all. None of that stuff is for me. And I became very bold and outspoken in that moment, and I said, yeah, me too, I'm not religious. <laughs> but then the banter began. You're a Christian. You're a Jesus Crispy. I remember that word very much. I don't know what Jesus Crispy means, but they said, you are a Jesus Crispy. You're a Bible thumper. You're a Christian. You guys go to church every Sunday. And it was true. They knew that. At least Ian and Chris did. They knew that if you stood, stay the night at my house on a Saturday night, my parents were going to this church, and that meant you were getting up Sunday morning, you were going to church. And they had the Bible, and they, had, they knew. And so the banter began, and the persecution began. <laughs> True, um, persecution has followed the church since its inception, since its birth, since its beginning. You guys know Acts chapter 2, right? The Holy Spirit falls, um, fulfilling Joel. Acts chapter 3, Peter stands up and gives that great sermon. By Acts 3, as that follows into Acts 4, Peter and John are both thrown into prison. Acts chapter 5, they're imprisoned again. 
Acts chapter 7, we have our first Christian martyr in Stephen who's stoned unjustly. Acts chapter 8, we see the general persecution of the church at large by Saul. It says that he's literally breathing out um, anger and resentment towards the church as he persecutes it. Acts chapter 12, we have the first disciple that's martyred in James, the brother of John. Rewind a couple of chapters to chapter 9. Saul is converted, begins going by Paul, and persecution follows him from conversion to martyrdom. The Jews were the first persecutors of the church. And as that persecution caused the gospel to spread, that um, it spread into the neighboring countries, the, the Gentile nations overseen by the Roman nation as a whole, And so the Romans took the mantle of primary persecutor of the church at that point, as they saw economics suffer by idol worship and and animal sacrifices as the income fell, (laughs) persecution began for the church. Um, They also saw the church as um, some sort of atheists because they they rejected the um, plural gods of the Roman culture, and they said there's just one true God, and so they were persecuted for that. So the Roman um, government took on the mantle of primary persecutor. This went on for 300 years. We know of Caesar Nero, right? Most of us know of him because he's the, the, the Caesar that oversaw the, the killing of Paul and Peter, but he was not actually the worst. He was merely the first. That actually continued through, um, through uh, Domitian, Decius, Diocletian for 300 years, all the way up until 324. You guys know Constantine took the church, made it a Roman state, or a Christian state, Christian state in Rome, the official religion. Uh, this was the precursor or the forerunner to the Roman Catholic system which began to be the arch-persecutor of the church through the Middle Ages. Truly, persecution has followed the church. According to Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, um, in church history, approximately 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith. Now, this isn't just because they did something, they, they died, or it was specifically because they took a stand for their belief in Jesus. 70 million. Since the turn of the century, the year 2000, 2.5 million plus Christians have been martyred. Persecution follows the church. Now, this is not to say that being called a Jesus Crispy compares to what it means to being a martyr. But to say that this is something that Jesus promised us And it is true, if the world hate you. I like the way this verse reads out in the English because it starts with if. (laughs) It makes me feel like, you know, if if it rains today, that means it might rain today. If the sun comes out, it might come out, but maybe it rains. We don't know, right? If it's possible that persecution doesn't... 
if the world hates me. Maybe, maybe it's going to hate me. And if so, so be it in these ways, but maybe not. That's actually not the way the original reads. It's an affirmative statement, if the world hates you. It's an affirmative, and you know that by reading the rest of the section and the way it culminates in chapter 16, verse 4, when Jesus says, when. And he continues to say, the world will hate you. And so it's not if, it is more so when. So this brings up the next question. What is the world? If the world hates you, what is the world? Well, there's three worlds in, in, in Scripture, and specifically in the Gospel of John. You guys know John chapter 1. The world was made by him. And so that speaks of the, the galaxies and the stars up above and down to our atmosphere and the earth below, the dirt that we walk on, the trees that grow, the animals that cross creation. You have this world, cosmos, creation. But you guys also know John chapter 3, verse 16, right? For God so loved the world. Same word, cosmos, but it does not speak to creation general, but it speaks to humanity specific. For God so loved the world, he loved you and I, he loves mankind specifically that was made in that imago day, that image of God, which we are image bearers of him. It says that he loves us and he loved us so much that he gave, not of some random price, but of the most costly thing himself. And so we have creation general, we have humanity specific, but this third sense is a little bit more abstract, a little more um, ethereal, world, cosmos. When I was a kid, um, watching Saturday morning TV, you have your cartoons, which are awesome, and then you've got your WCW wrestling that comes on after that, equally great. Um, but following that, you have the wide world of sports. Does anybody remember that show? It was around for a long time, and I loved it. But it was not a study of a planet that existed a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? It does not refer to a country or a state by which they go by the name sport. But it's the philosophies, it's the rules, it's the conquests and defeats of these um, specific disciplines by these athletes we call sports. In the same way, that's what John is referring to, or, or Jesus, when he says, the world hates you. It's referring to these um, philosophies and these economies and these plans and these organizations that by themselves or ultimately are existing apart from and opposed to God. Organizations, plans, people groups, economies. The world system is the antichrist system. And so Jesus says, that is going to hate you. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He doesn't say, the world's going to hate you. I'm going to go. See you all later. Peace out. But he says, it's important for you, because the world is going to hate you, that you understand the context and the perspectives in which it exists, so that when it comes, you can move through it. And that's what we'll kind of look at today. 
Do not be scandalized when the world hates you because. Number one, pick up with me, because it already hates him. Verse 18 says that. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before you. It's not about you. This hate that you feel, this persecution that you are under, if slash when, it's not about you. It's important to remember that. It's kind of like the girl that breaks up with the guy and says, it's not you, it's me. (laughs) And you're like, uh... But if it wasn't me, it wouldn't be you, which means it is me. (laughs) It it is me. But that's not the case here. In truth and in reality, it's not about you. It's a hatred towards Jesus that by nature has to be manifest toward you. The world hates Jesus. You love Jesus. The world will hate you. It's truly not about you. And the apostles understand that in Acts chapter 5. As I just talked about that jailing that they went through. It, it showed that when they, when they left that jail, it says that they went away rejoicing that they were found worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Now, they didn't, they didn't suffer shame for their own name. It wasn't like, man, Peter's an awesome dude, and so I'm going to persecute him. No, the guy was a fisherman. He says that he was unlearned. They didn't even respect the guy, really, those religious rulers. They just knew that he speaks power through the name and the spirit of Jesus, and therefore they had to do something about it. And so because they knew that the, that the persecution was really a persecution of Jesus, they could say, oh man, this is great that I actually get to suffer persecution because it links me with my Savior. It's on behalf of him, and it's not actually me. Second thing we found out in verse 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You are not a part of the world. You're not a part of the world. Now, sometimes Christians can get this, and that means that they they look to to remove themselves from the world. They go and they live um, in the hills, maybe in a monastery, or maybe they just completely seclude themselves from culture, from society, from people, and they think, like, this is what I'm supposed to do as a Christian. But really, think of John chapter 17, verse 4. Jesus says, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. It's more so like this. You go to a, a friend's house, or maybe you just walk into your neighbor's house, and you go and you, you throw in your PJs and you make yourself at home on their couch. Does that fly? Probably not. Well, I'm tired and I'm going to take a nap, and so I'm going to go utilize their bed. Probably doesn't work. You're not welcome to help yourself to their fridge. In the same way, this is not your home. This is not your people group. After I graduated high school, I moved to um, Bend, Oregon just a couple of years ago. Um, 
I moved to Bend. I thought that it was a good idea. My cousin lived there. And so I moved to Bend and we got an apartment and we were 18 and we were probably the only two guys that were 18 and had our own apartment in that friend group. And so then that apartment became all of my cousin's friend's apartment, right? Like that's kind of how it works. Your couch is slept on every single night. They're there. If they, if they leave, it's not until 3 a.m. Um, that's kind of how it goes. And so we, we, I got an apartment with my cousin and we lived there for eight, nine months. And um, he had friends. These guys came over. And so I was like, well, they're my cousin's friends. So they're my friends. And so I worked really hard to fit in and to be friends, but everything always kind of like fell short. I knew that like, like whatever I'm doing is not clicking. And then he grew up, so he kind of knew the culture and he knew that he had a familiarity with the area. And I didn't really have that. And he had family there. His parents were there and, and my parents were three, three and a half hours away. It just was odd. It was a weird experience for me for those times. And I always was like, why, why is this not working? Why is everything such a struggle and a fight? Why do they not like me like they like him? And I realized these are his friends. They're not my friends. This is his community and his culture. It is not my community and my culture. His family is here. My family is not. That was not my home. In the same way, you are not home here. And so when you seek to find like some sort of satisfaction or contentment or, or um, fulfillment here, you're looking in the wrong spot. And the same way, they are not going to ultimately accept you or accept me because I really don't belong. So don't be surprised and don't be scandalized when the world hates you because the world is not your home. Third, verse 21, reads this. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake because they know not him that sent me. Don't be surprised, don't be scandalized when the world hates you because they don't know the Father. They don't know the Father. They can't know the Father. Actually, Jesus said this to the religious rulers on numerous occasions. You don't know my Father. If you had known my Father, you would have known me. He says that many times. And really, that's a slap in the face to these guys because they spent their lives studying Scripture. They could cite chapter and verse if they had chapter and verse back then, which they didn't. But they could cite through the scriptures, exactly why they were um, identifying their doctrines. But Jesus called them out in, in Mark chapter 7. It's interesting, he calls them out. In Mark chapter 7, 6 through 13, I'll read it to you really quick. He answered them, he calls them out, he says, Well has Isaiah prophesied of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold on to the traditions of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other things you do likewise. And he said, full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own traditions. For Moses said, honor thy father and mother, and whosoever curses father or mother, let him die the death. But you say... If a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, or that means it's dedicated to God. So it's Corban, that's to say by gift, by whatsoever you you might have profited by me, I'm free of it. And you suffer him no more to do aught unto his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you delivered, and many such things you do. Jesus calls him out and he says, hey, you've got all these doctrines that you pull out and you, you have some scriptures here and some scriptures there, but they're contrary to my word and they do not honor my father. See, they never actually knew the father. They loved the scriptures, they did. But they loved the scriptures because it brought them power. They loved the scriptures because it brought them money. They loved the scriptures because of the accolades and the honor and the respect before man, but they didn't love it because they loved the Father. And because they do not know the Father, they cannot know the Son. And we do have many people in the church today that do that same thing. We love the scriptures because it makes me money. And they prostitute the gospel. One of the chief issues with the prosperity gospel is because it lacks a doctrine of suffering. But without a doctrine of suffering, you cannot love Jesus. Because he was the sufferer. He was the man of sorrows. And if this world is your home and that's what you exist for, you cannot love the Son because this is not the Son's home. And they did not love the Father and therefore they could not love the Son. Ergo, they will hate you. So don't be scandalized. Don't be surprised when they hate you. Also, don't be surprised, don't be scandalized when they hate you because their sin is exposed. Let's read verse 22. If I didn't come and speak unto them, they would not have had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. Because Jesus came, therefore righteousness came, man is faced with the revelation of his sin. Now, the sin existed. It didn't not exist. It existed from Adam until the giving of the laws. We read in Romans. And Paul tells us how that law works as a mirror so that we can see our own sin. It's a revelatory device. And Jesus said, I came, and I am the light. And because I'm light, I expose darkness. Now, this kind of works two ways. It works, it doesn't just expose darkness of the unbeliever, of the non-Christian. It exposes the darkness of the believer and the unbeliever. 
And so we have two ways that we can react to that. As I was reading this, it just brought to my mind that story of Eustace and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I don't know if you guys ever read that, but it's a story where Eustace is just this terrible little dude. He just is bitter. He's malicious. He's angry. Um, he's greedy. He's self-centered. Um, and he winds up on this magical adventure, right, with his cousins. And they wind up on an island. In this island, he finds a cave, and it's filled with treasure. And he's so greedy that he goes in there, and he's like, this treasure's going to be mine, and I'm going to use this power to get back at anybody who ever wronged me. And, and through this, it's like all the stuff within him is welling up outside of him. And he gets tired, falls asleep. And what he doesn't know is that this cave is the horde of a dragon. And as he wakes up, he has transformed into a dragon. As he realizes how um, dire the situation is, he's like, they're going to leave me, and I'm going to be left to um, just live my life alone in isolation as a dragon on an island. And he pursues after him. And, and thankfully, eventually, Aslan, the, the king of Narnia, right, this, this good king of Narnia, he finds Eustace, and he takes him to this pool of water. And he says, now strip down and get in the pool. And Eustace realizes when, when Aslan's telling him this, like what he means by strip down, he's like, I've got to get rid of these scales, these dragon scales that are over him. And he starts to scratch. And as he's scratching, he realizes there's just layer of scale under layer of scale under layer of scale. He can't, he can't scratch him off enough. And he's like, what am I going to do? And Aslan says to him, he says, you must let me remove the scales. And Eustace recounts this and he says, as he's recounting this, he says, I was afraid of the claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought that it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought, just as I thought I had done it to myself these other three times, only they hadn't hurt and there it was, lighting, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I'd been turned into a boy again. See, for the believer, when we're faced with our own depravity, when we see the scales of just the darkness that we walk in upon us, we, we realize, man, we're, we're, we're broken and we're powerless to do anything about it. But Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to shine my light and I'm going to cleanse you. And so the Christian is willing. He's willing to see himself for what the Lord sees, and he's willing to allow the Lord to do the work that cleanses us. The blood of Jesus, it cleanses you and it cleanses me from all unrighteousness and sin. The world, on the other hand, will not accept that. John chapter 3, which I quoted before, is, is followed by a couple of verses where Jesus says this, This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his evil deeds should be reproved. 
and that's the world, and they will hate you because you represent the revelation of their depravity. When you say to them, God came to save a sinful world that cannot save himself, they say, hey, I, who are you to say that I can't save myself? Who are you to tell me that I'm a sinner? Who are you to tell me that my lifestyle is, is wrong? That I can't do this or that I can't do that? Who are you? And the world will hate you for it. Now, the fact that the world will hate you has, has an implication, an impact on both you and them. The impact on them comes in these following verses, um, 23 and 24, where he says, He that hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works which I did, which no other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my Father. This is a full rejection of the Father. Jesus said, All sins are forgiven all men with the exception of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Spirit of God will not strive always with men. Possibly, you're in this room and you have been striving against the Spirit of God. As He has called you time and time again into repentance and to turn towards Him, you have said, I will not. The Bible also says it's appointed for once a man to die and then the judgment. Full rejection of the Father will lead you into eternal damnation. And that is the ultimate outcome of hating Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, 32 through 39. says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but the sword. For I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. For whosoever loves the father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whosoever loves son or daughter more than me is not more than is not worthy of me. Whosoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. Jesus requires decision. And if you're in this room and you have been rejecting Jesus, now is a time for decision. 
J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, he said, when I preach, I am either your best friend or I'm your most hated enemy. Because when I declare the gospel, you will have either heard it and rejected it or you will hear it and embrace it. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says, Now is the acceptable time. Now is the hour of favor. It's time to turn to Jesus. Conversely, this has impact on the believer as well. In verse 25, um, Jesus uses these words. He says, but, the word, but that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without cause. Jesus says that this was prophesied. This is a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 35 and Psalm 30, 69, excuse me, where David spoke of the persecutors of him, and he says, man, they hate me for no reason. And Jesus says, just as they hated him with no reason, King David, they will hate the king of kings, Jesus, for no reason. It's a fulfillment. But Jesus did this often. He told people what was going to happen when he was talking about his death. He said, I tell you this ahead of time so that you're not surprised. I also tell you this because it's a fulfillment of Scripture. It's like double implication for us because what happens when he tells us ahead of time, he wants you to know, don't be surprised when this happens. It's going to happen. And so that allows you to to prepare your heart and your mind and your posture for whatever is going to take place. But he also says it's a fulfillment of Scripture. And why does he say that? Because it's important to know that God is sovereign in every single circumstance and situation. God not only knew that his son was going to be rejected and crucified, that he was going to go through a mock trial and a beating beyond no other, but he prophesied it ahead of time and he said the lamb was slain from the foundations of the world. And so if God can take the most just one, I mean just meaning pure, holy, innocent, the only one who is just, because there's not a one of us that is. And if God can take the most undeserving one himself and lay this punishment and say, I prophesied it beforehand and I work good through it, he does that and he promises for us. God is sovereign. He's benevolent. He's good and he loves And that's important because if you don't have that perspective, what you might have a tendency to do when you face persecution, when you face hate, is begin to shake your fist at the world. This place has gone to hell in a handbasket. You guys are good for nothing but kindling in the fires of the depth. And many Christians take that posture. We see them protesting on the corners. You're going to hell, you heathen.
And that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus does not point his finger at the world. When Jesus was entering the city, that, that Palm Sunday, it says that he, he gathered himself on the hilltop outside Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known. And it says that he wept. He wept over Jerusalem, just as Jeremiah the prophet did as he wept over Jerusalem when he saw it up in fire. Jesus sees the fire of hell and the people of what they're going to do, and it says that he weeps over them. He has a heart of compassion because he loves them. And he said, if only you would come to me. Don't you know that I would have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks? The heart of Jesus was never to send people to hell. But he says, you're going to hell and I'm here to rescue you. His heart is a heart of love and compassion, of mercy and grace. And if we're not careful, we will not carry that heart, but we'll carry the opposite one, the ones that say, go to hell. Those of you that hate me and persecute me, go to hell. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And so it's important to know that Jesus told you persecution is going to come. The world is going to hate you. And so you need to know and you need to be prepared. And you have to have the right heart in you. As we wrap up here, um, Nick's going to come on up and, and, and begin worship again, but I want to finish with a thought. James, in, in chapter 4, verse 4, he said, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And he gives a pretty stern warning. He said, you guys are so full with the lusts of your flesh. You guys are so full with the ways of this world. There's wars and there's fighting and there's murders among you because you guys aren't actually filled with the spirit. You're filled with the world. And he says, don't you know, friendship with the world is enmity with God. It cannot coexist. And I look at the church today Maybe not us specifically, maybe some of us deep down. But it seems like we want awfully bad to be friends with the world. We get pretty caught up in, in our Instagram influence. We've got preachers now that do sneaker deals. We grab a doctrine of comfort and we embrace it as opposed to a doctrine of suffering. We look for what we can get out of the world 
and we don't stand on truth. And when we're confronted with what do we say about truth, we cower in fear. Because fear of man is a trap. And I want to evaluate my heart. And I want to have a godly heart towards suffering. And I want to have a godly perspective of what my role is in the world. Because we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And when we try to be of the world, we lose our impact. We compromise his gospel. So as we stand together right now and we begin to enter back into worship, I want us to search our hearts. During this first song, communion is going to be open um, and we'll take it as a family, but let's evaluate as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup. Are we making the gospel of Jesus of no effect? Have we made null and void what it means to suffer on a cross? Have we picked up our cross and followed him? Or have we said, um, I'll like you, Jesus, as long as my stuff goes good. So let's stand right now. Stand with me, please. As we begin to worship and as we grab of the cup, let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are a good God, and you proved it for us while you were on the cross. And you promised to be with us through times of suffering. You promised to empower us through times of tragedy. And there is nothing that we face in this world that you have not already taken care of. You said, in this world you will have tribulations, but I have overcome the world. And so, Jesus, we remember that as we worship you this morning. You are a good God. So hear our worship as we praise you. Guide our thoughts and our hearts as we meditate on you. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.